Hello everyone and welcome to the fourth episode of The World of Percy Jackson. So in this episode, we are going to read chapters 7 through 8. And if you guys don't remember what happened in the previous chapters, uh, Percy got expelled from his school because of something that he says he didn't do, but everyone thinks he did. And then he killed his pre-algebra teacher that with a pen that turns into a sword. And then he and his mother went to Montauk to have, you know, some kind of chill time and some mother and son time, but then it's quickly, you know, disturbed by a monster or a minotaur, which is half bull, half man, and then Percy goes into this fight with the minotaur, and he defeats it, which is good, but his mother is squeezed into nothingness, and that leaves Percy pretty sad, but He wakes up in a cabin, and right now he's staying at cabin 11. And so, yeah, we are in chapter 7, and we're going to read chapter 7 and 8 today. Chapter 7. My dinner goes up in smoke. Word of the bathroom incident spread immediately. Wherever I went, campers pointed at me and murmured something about toilet water. Or maybe they were just staring at Annabeth, who was still pretty much dripping wet. She showed me a few more places. The metal shop, where kids were forging their own swords. The arts and crafts room, where satires were sandblasting a giant marble statue of a goat man. And the climbing wall, which actually consisted of two facing walls that shook violently, dropping boulders, sprayed lava, and clashed together if you didn't get to the top fast enough. Finally, we returned to the canoeing lake, where the trail led back to the cabins. I've got training to do, Annabeth said flatly. Dinner's at 7.30. Just follow your cabin to the mess hall. Annabeth, I'm sorry about the toilets. Whatever. It wasn't my fault. She looked at me skeptically, and I realized it was my fault. I made water shoot out of the bathroom fixtures. I didn't understand how, but the toilets had responded to me. I'd become one with the plumbing. You need to talk to the oracle, Annabeth said. Who? Not who, what, the oracle. I'll ask Sharon. I stared into the lake, wishing somebody would give me a straight answer for once. I wasn't expecting anybody to be looking back at me from the bottom, so my heart skipped a beat when I noticed two teenage girls sitting cross-legged at the base of the pier, about 20 feet below. They wore blue jeans and shimmering green t-shirts, and their brown hair floated loose around their shoulders as minnows darted in and out. They smiled and waved as if I was, if as if I were a long-lost friend. I don't know what else to do. I waved back. Don't encourage them, Annabeth warned. Naiads are terrible flirts. Naiads, I repeated, feeling completely overwhelmed. That's it. I want to go home now. Annabeth frowned. Don't you get it, Percy? You are home. This is the only safe place on earth for kids like us. You mean mentally disturbed kids? I mean not human. Not totally human, anyway. Half human. Half human and half what? I think you know. I didn't want to admit it, but I was afraid I did. I felt a tingling in my limbs, a sensation I sometimes felt when my mom talked about my dad. God, I said. Half God? Annabeth nodded. Your father isn't dead, Percy. He's one of the Olympians. That's crazy. Is it? 
What's the most common thing gods did in the old stories? They ran around falling in love with humans and having kids with them. Do you think they've changed their habits in the few millennia? But those are just... I almost said myths again, but then I remembered Shiran's warning that in 2,000 years, I might be considered a myth. But if all the kids here are half-gods, demigods, Annabeth said, that's the official term, or half-bloods, then who's your dad? Her hands tightened around the pier railing. I got the feeling I just trespassed on a sensitive subject. My dad is a professor at West Point, she said. I haven't seen him since I was very small. He teaches American history. He's human. What? You assume it has to be a male god who finds a human female attractive? How sexist is that? Who's your mom then? Cabin six. Meaning? Annabeth straightened. Athena, goddess of, goddess of wisdom and battle. Okay, I thought. Why not? And my dad? Undetermined, Annabeth said. Like I told you before, nobody knows. Except my mother. She knew. Maybe not, Percy. Gods don't always reveal their identities. My dad would have. He loved her. Annabeth gave me a cautious look. She didn't want to burst my bubble. Maybe you're right. Maybe he'll send a sign. That's the only way to know for sure. Your father has to send you a sign claiming you as his son. Sometimes it happens. I mean, sometimes it doesn't? Annabeth ran her palm along the rail. The gods are busy. They have a lot of kids and they don't always... Well, sometimes they don't care about us, Percy. They ignore us. I thought about some of the kids I'd seen in the Hermes cabin. Teenagers who looked sullen and depressed, as if they were waiting for a call that would never come. I'd known kids like that at Yancey Academy, shuffled off to boarding school by rich parents who didn't have time to deal with them. But God should, have, should behave better. So I'm stuck here, I said. That's it. For the rest of my life? It depends, Annabeth said. Some campers only stay the summer. If you're a child of Aphrodite or Demeter, you're probably not a real powerful force. The monsters might ignore you, so you can get by with a few months of summer training and live in the mortal world the rest of the year. But for some of us, it's too dangerous to leave. We're year-rounders. In the mortal world, we attract monsters. They sense us. They come to challenge us. Most of the time, they'll ignore us until we're old enough to cause trouble. About 10 or 11 years old. But after that, most demigods either make way here or, get, or they get killed off. A few manage to survive in the outside world and become famous. Believe me, if I told you the names, you know them. Some don't even realize they're demigods, but very, very few are like that. So monsters can't get in here? Annabeth shook her head. Not unless they're in intentionally stalked in the woods or specially summoned by somebody on the inside. Why would somebody, anybody want to summon a monster? Practice fights. Practical jokes. Practical jokes? The point is, the borders are sealed to keep mortals and monsters out. From the outside, mortals look into the valley and see nothing unusual. Just a strawberry farm. So, you're year-rounder? Annabeth nodded. From under the collar of her t-shirt, she pulled a leather necklace with five clay beads of different colors. It was just like Luke's, except Annabeth had a, also had a, gold, a big gold ring strung on it, like a college ring. I've been here since I was seven, she said. Every August, on the last day of summer session, you get a bead for surviving another year. I've been here longer than most of the counselors, and they're all in college. Why did you come so young? She twisted the ring on her necklace. None of your business. Oh, I stood there for a minute in uncomfortable silence. So, 
I could just walk out of here right now if I wanted to. It would be suicide, but you could. With Mr. D's or Sharon's permission. But they wouldn't get permission until the end of the summer session. Unless... Unless... You are granted a quest. But that hardly ever happens. The last time... Her voice trailed off. I could tell her tone that the last time hadn't gone well. Back in the sick room, I said. When you were feeding me that stuff? Ambrosia. Yeah, you asked me something about the summer solstice. Annabeth's shoulders tensed. So you do know something? Well, no. Back in my old school, I overheard Grover and Sharon talking about it. Grover mentioned the summer solstice. He said something like we didn't have much time because of the deadline. What did that mean? She clenched her fists. I wish I knew. Sharon and the satires, they know, but they won't tell me. Something is wrong in in Olympus. Something pretty major. Last time I was there, everything seemed so normal. You've been to Olympus? Some of us year-rounders, Luke and Clarice and I and a few others, we took a field trip during winter solstice. That's when the gods have their big annual council. But how did you get there? The Long Island Railroad, of course. You get off at Penn Station, Empire State Building, special elevator to the 600th floor. She looked at me like she was sure I, was must, I must know this already. You are a New Yorker, right? Oh, sure. As far as I knew, there were only 102 floors in the Empire State Building, but I decided not to point that out. Right after we visited, Annabeth continued, the weather got weird, as if the gods had started fighting. A couple of times since, I've overheard the satires talking. The best I can figure out is that something important was stolen. And if it isn't returned by summer solstice, there's going to be trouble. When you came, I was hoping... I mean... Athena can get along with just about anybody, except for Ares. And of course, she's got the rivalry with Poseidon. But I mean, aside from that, I thought we could work together. I thought you might know something. I shook my head. I wish I could I wished I could help her, but I felt too hungry and tired and mentally overloaded to ask any more questions. I've got to get a quest. Annabeth muttered to herself, "I'm not too young. If they would just tell me the problem, I could smell barbecue smoke coming from somewhere nearby." Annabeth must have heard my stomach growl. She told me to go on. She'd catch me later. I left her on the pier, tracing her finger across the rail as if it, as if drawing a battle plan. Back at cabin 11, everyone was talking and horsing around, waiting for dinner. For the first time, I noticed that a lot of campers had similar features. Sharp noses, upturned eyebrows, mischievous smiles. They were kinds of kids that teachers would peg as troublemakers. Thankfully, nobody paid much attention to me as I walked over to my spot on the floor and plopped down with my minotaur horn. The counselor, Luke, came over. He had the Hermes family resemblance too. It was marred by that scar on his right cheek, but his smile was intact. Found you a sleeping bag, he said, and here, I stole you some toiletries from the camp store. I couldn't tell if he was kidding about the stealing part. I said, thanks. No problem. Luke sat next to me, pushed his back against the wall. Tough first day. I don't belong here, I said. I don't even believe in gods. Yeah, he said. That's how we all started. Once you start believing in them, it doesn't get any easier. The bitterness in his voice surprised me, because Luke seemed like a pretty easygoing guy. He looked like he could handle just about anything. So your dad is Hermes? I asked. He pulled a switchblade out of his back pocket 
and for a second, I thought he was going to gut me. But he just scraped the mud off the sole of his sandal. Yeah, Hermes. The wing-footed messenger guy? That's him. Messengers, medicine, travelers, merchants, thieves. Anybody who uses the roads. That's why you're here, enjoying Cabin Eleven's hospitality. Hermes isn't picky about who he sponsored. Sponsors. I figured Luke didn't mean to call me a nobody. He just had a lot on his mind. You ever meet your dad? I asked. Once. I waited, thinking that if he wanted to tell me, he'd tell me. Apparently, he didn't. I wonder if the story had to do with how he got that scar. Or how he got his scar. Look, 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 Luke looked up and managed a smile. Don't worry about it, Percy. The campers here, they're mostly good people. After all, we're extended family, right? We take care of each other. He seemed to understand how lost I felt, and I was grateful for that, because an older guy like him, even if he was a counselor, should have steered clear of an uncool middle schooler like me. But Luke well had welcomed me into the cabin. He'd even stolen me some toiletries, which was the nicest thing anybody had done for me all day. I decided to ask him my last big question, the one that bothering me all afternoon. Clarice, from Aries, was joking about me being big three material. Then Annabeth, twice, she said I might be the one. She said I should talk to the Oracle. What was that all about? Luke folded his knife. I hate prophecies. What do you mean? His face twitched around the scar. Let's just say I mess things up for everybody else. The last two years, ever since my trip to the Garden of Hesperides went sour, Sharon hasn't allowed any more quests. Annabeth's been dying to get out into the world. She pestered Sharon so much, he finally told her he already knew her fate. He'd had a prophecy from the Oracle. He wouldn't tell her the whole thing, but he said Annabeth wasn't destined to go on a quest yet. She had to wait until somebody special came to the camp. Somebody special? Don't worry about it, kid, Luke said. Annabeth wants to think every new camper who comes through here is the omen she's been waiting for. Now come on, it's dinner time. The moment he said it, a horn blew in the distance. Somehow I knew it was a conch shell, even though I never heard one before. Luke yelled, Eleven, fall in! The whole cabin, about twenty of us, filed into the common yards. We lined up in order of seniority, so of course I was dead last. Campers came from the other cabins too, except for the three empty cabins at the end, and cabin eight, which had looked normal in the daytime, but was now starting to glow silver as the sun went down. We marched up the hill to the mess hall pavilion. Satires joined us from the meadows. Naiads emerged from the canoeing lake. A few other girls came out of the woods. And when I say out of the woods, I mean straight out of the woods. I saw one girl about nine or ten years old melt from the side of a maple tree and come skipping up the hill. In all, there were maybe a dozen, a hundred campers, a few dozen satires, and a dozen assorted wood nymphs and naiads. At the pavilion, torches blazed around the marble columns. A central fire burned in a bronze brazier the size of a bathtub. Each cabin had its own table, covered in white cloth, white cloth trimmed in purple. Four of the tables were empty, but cabin 11's was way overcrowded. I had to squeeze onto the edge of a bench with half my butt hanging off. I saw Grover sitting at, the, at table 12 with Mr. D, a few satires, and a com- couple of plump blonde boys who looked just like Mr. D. Sharon stood stood to one side, the picnic table being way too small for a centaur. 
Annabeth sat at table six with a bunch of serious-looking athletic kids, all with her gray eyes and honey blonde hair. Clarice sat behind me at Aries' table. She apparently gotten over being hosed down because she was laughing and belching right along her, alongside her friends. Finally, Sharon pounded his hoof against the marble floor of the pavilion, and everyone fell silent. He raised a glass. To the gods! Everyone else raised their glasses. To the gods! Wood nymphs came forward with platters of food. Grapes, apples, strawberry cheese, fresh bread, and yes, barbecue. My glass was empty, but Luke said, Speak to it, whatever you want. Non-alcoholic, of course. I said, Cherry Coke. The glass filled with sparkling caramel liquid. Then I had an idea. Blue Cherry Coke. The soda turned a violent shade of cobalt. I took a cautious sip. Perfect. I drank a toast to my mother. She's not gone, I told myself. Not permanently, anyway. She's in the underworld. And if that's a real place, then someday... Here you go, Percy, Luke said, handing me a platter of smoked brisket. I loaded my plate and was about to take a big bite when I noticed everybody getting up, carrying their plates toward the fire in the center of the pavilion. I wonder if they're going for dessert or something. Come on, Luke told me. As I got closer, I saw that everyone was taking a portion of their meal and dropping it into the fire. The ripest strawberry, the juiciest slice of beef, the warmest, most buttery roll. Luke murmured in my ear, burnt offerings for the gods. They like the smell. You're kidding. His look, his look warned me not to take this lightly, but I couldn't help wondering why an, an immortal, all-powerful being would like the smell of burning food. Luke approached the fire, bowed his head, and tossed in a cluster of fat red grapes. Hermes. I was next. I wish I knew what God's name to say. Finally, I made a silent plea. Whoever you are, tell me, please. I scraped a big slice of brisket into the flames. When I caught a whiff on of the smoke, I didn't gag. It smelled nothing like burned food. It smelled of hot chocolate and bre- fresh baked, baked brownies, hamburgers on the grill and wildfire flowers, and a hundred other good things that shouldn't have gone well together but did. I couldn't almost believe the gods could live off the smoke, that smoke. When everybody had returned to their seats and finished eating their meals, Sharon pounded his hoof again for our attention. Mr. D got up with a huge sigh. Yes, I suppose I'd better say hello to all you brats. Well, hello. Our activities director, Sharon, says the next capture the flag is Friday. Cabin 5 presently holds the laurels. A bunch of ugly cheering rose from the Aries table. Personally, Mr. D continued, I couldn't care less, but congratulations. Also, I should tell you that we have a new camper today, Peter Johnson. Sean murmured something. Er, Percy Jackson, Mr. D corrected. That's right, hurrah and all that. Now run along to your silly campfire. Go on. Everybody cheered. We all headed down toward the amphitheater, where Apollo's cabin led a sing-along. We sang canned songs about the gods and ate s'mores and joked around, And the funny thing was, I didn't feel that anyone was staring at me anymore. I felt that I was home. Later in the evening, when the sparks from the campfire were curling into a starry sky, the the conch horn blew again, and we all filed back to our cabins. I didn't realize how exhausted I was until I collapsed on my borrowed sleeping bag. My fingers curled around the minotaur's horn. I thought about my mom, but I had good thoughts. Her smile, the bedtime story she would read me when I was a kid, and the way she would tell me not to let the bed bugs bite. When I closed my eyes, I fell asleep instantly. 
That was my first day at Camp Half-Blood. I wish I'd known how briefly I would get to enjoy my new home. And that is the end of Chapter 7. And don't be sad. We will come back to it uh, after a few ads. And I will read Chapter 8, which is We Capture a Flag. And welcome back from the ads, and we are going to read Chapter 8, Recapture a Flag. The next few days, I settled into a routine that felt almost normal. If you don't count the fact that I was getting lessons from satires, nymphs, and a centaur, each morning I took ancient Greek from Annabeth, and we talked about the gods and goddesses in the present tense, which was kind of weird. I discovered Annabeth was right about my dyslexia, and ancient Greek wasn't that hard for me to read at least no harder than English. After a couple of mornings, I could stumble through a few lines of Homer without without too much headache. The rest of the day, I'd rotate through outdoor activities, looking for something I was good at. Sharon tried to teach me archery, but we found out pretty quick I wasn't good at, I wasn't any good with the bow and arrow. He didn't complain, even when he had to de-snack a stray arrow out of his tail. Foot racing, no good either. The wood nymph instructors left me in the dust. They told me not to worry about it. They'd had centuries of practice running away from lovesick gods. But still, it was a little humiliating to be slower than a tree. And wrestling? Forget it. Every time I got on the mat, Clarice would pulverize me. That's There's there's more than where that came from, punk. She mum, she mum, she'd mumble in my ear. The only thing I, re- I really excelled at was canoeing. And that wasn't the kind of heroic skill people expected to see from the kid who had beaten the Minotaur. I knew the senior campers and counselors were watching me, trying to decide who my dad was, but they weren't having an easy time of it. I wasn't as strong as the Ares kids, or as good as archery as the Apollo kids. I didn't have Hephaestus' skill with metalwork, or, gods forbid, Dionysus' way with vine plants. Luke told me I might be a child of Hermes, a, ca- a kind of jack-of-all-trades, master of none. But I got the feeling he was just trying to make me feel better. He really didn't know what to make of me either. Despite all that, I liked camp. I got used to the morning fog over the beach, the smell of hot strawberry fields in the afternoon, even the weird noises of monsters in the woods at night. I would eat dinner with Cabin Eleven, scrape part of my meal into the fire, and try to feel some connection to my real dad. Nothing came, just that warm feeling I'd always had, like the memory of his smile. I tried not to think too much about my mom, but I kept wondering, if gods and monsters were real, if all this magical stuff was possible, surely there was some way to save her, to bring her back? I started to understand Luke's bitterness and how he seemed to resent his father, Hermes. So, okay, maybe gods had important things to do, but couldn't they call once in a while, or thunder, or something? Dionysus could make Diet Coke appear out of thin air. Why couldn't my dad, whoever he was, make a phone appear? Thursday afternoon, three days after I arrived at Camp Half-Blood, I had my first sword fighting lesson. Everybody from Cabin 11 gathered in the big circular arena where Luke would be our instructor. We started with basic stabbing and slashing, using some straw-stuffed dummies and Greek armor. I guess I did okay, at least. I understood what I was supposed to do, and my reflexes were good. The problem was, I couldn't find a blade that felt right in my hands. Either they were too heavy or too light or too long. 
Luke tried his best to fix me up, but he agreed that none of the practice blades seemed to work for me. We moved on to dueling in pairs. Luke announced that he, announced he would be my partner, since this was my first time. Good luck, one of the campers told me. Luke's the best swordsman in the last 300 years. Maybe he'll go easy on me, I said. The camper snorted. Luke showed me thrusts and parries and shield, blo- shield blocks the hard way. With every swipe, I got a little more battered and bruised. Keep your guard up, Percy, he'd say, then whap me in the w- ribs with the flat of his blade. No, not that far up. Whap. Lunge. Whap. Now back. Whap. By the time he called a break, I was soaked in sweat. Everybody swarmed the drinks cooler. Luke poured ice water on his head, which looked like such a good idea. I did the same. Instantly, I felt better. Strength surged back into my arms. The sword didn't feel so awkward. Okay, everybody circle up, Luke ordered. If Percy doesn't mind, I want to give you a little demo. Great, I thought. Let's all watch Percy get pounded. The Hermes guys gathered around. They were suppressing smiles. I figured they'd been in my shoes before and couldn't wait to see how Luke used me for a punching bag. He told everybody he was going to demonstrate a disarming technique, how to twist the enemy's blade with the flat of your own sword so that he had no choice but to drop his weapon. This is difficult, he stressed. I've had it used against me. No laughing at Percy now. Most swordsmen have to work years to master this technique. He demonstrated the move on me in slow motion. Sure enough, the sword clattered out of my hand. Now in real time, he said, after I've retrieved my weapon. We keep sparring until one of us pulls it off. Ready, Percy? I nodded, and Luke came after me. Somehow I kept him from getting a shot at, my, at the hilt on my sword. My senses opened up. I saw his attacks coming. I countered. I stepped forward and tried to thrust on my own. Luke deflected it easily, but I saw a change in his face. His eyes narrowed, and he started to press me with more force. The sword grew heavy in my hand. The balance wasn't right. I knew it was only a matter of seconds before Luke took me down, so I figured, what the heck. I tried the disarming maneuver. My blade hit the base of Luke's, and I twisted, putting my whole weight into a downward thrust. Clang. Luke's sword rattled against the stones. The tip of my blade was an inch from his undefended chest. The other other campers went silent, were silent. I lowered my sword. Um, sorry. For a moment, Luke was too, too stunned to speak. Sorry? His scarred face broke into a grin. By the gods, Percy, why are you sorry? Show me that again. I didn't want to. The short burst of manic energy had completely abandoned me, but Luke insisted. This time, there was no contest. The moment our swords connected, Luke hit my hilt and set my weapon skinning across the floor. After a long pause, somebody in the audience said, Beginner's luck? Luke wiped the sweat off his brow. He appraised me with an entirely new interest. Maybe, he said, but I wonder what Percy could do with a balance sword. Friday afternoon, I was sitting with Grover at the lake, resting from a near-death experience on the climbing wall. Grover had scampered to the top like a mountain goat. Grover had scampered to the top like a mountain goat, but the lava had almost gotten me. My shirt was smoking holes in it, had smoking holes in it. The hairs had been singed off my forearms. We sat on the pier, watching the naiads do underwater basket weaving, until I got up the nerve to ask Grover how his conversation had gone with Mr. D. His fur, his face turned a sickly shade of yellow. Fine. He said, just great. 
so your career's still on track? He glanced at me nervously. Sharon told you I want a searcher's license? Well, no. I had no idea what a searcher's license was, but it didn't seem like the right time to ask. He just said you had big plans, you know, and that you need a credit for completing a keeper's assignment. So did you get it? Grover looked down at the naiads. Mr. D suspended judgment. He said I hadn't failed or succeeded with you yet, so our fates were still tied together. If you got a quest and I went along to protect you and we both came alive, came back alive, then maybe he'd consider the job complete. My spirits lifted. That's not so bad, right? Blah! He might as well have transferred me to stable cleaning duty. The chances of you getting a quest, and even if you did, why would you want me along? Of course I want you along. Grover stared glumly into the water. Basket weaving. Must be nice to have a useful skill. I tried to reassure him that he had lots of talents, but that just made him look more miserable. We talked about canoeing and swordplay for a while, then debated the pros and cons of the different gods. Finally, I asked him about the four empty cabins. Number eight, the silver one, belongs to Artemis, he said. She vowed to be a maiden forever, so of course, no kids. The cabin is, you know, honorary. If she didn't have one, she'd be mad. Yeah, okay, but the other three? The ones at the end? Are those the big three? Grover tensed. We were getting close to a touchy subject. No, one of them, number two, is Harris, he said. That's another honorary thing. She's a goddess of marriage, so of course she wouldn't go around having affairs with mortals. That's her husband's job. Uh, when we say the big three, we mean the three powerful brothers, the sons of Kronos. Zeus, Poseidon, Hades? Right, you know, after the great battle with the Titans, they took over the world from their dad and drew lots to decide who got what. Zeus got the sky, I remembered. Poseidon, the sea. Hades, the underworld. Uh-huh. But Hades doesn't have a cabin here. No, he doesn't have a throne on Olympus either. He sort of does his own thing down in the underworld. If he did have a cabin here... Grover shuddered. Well, it wouldn't be pleasant. Let's leave it at that. But Zeus and Poseidon, they both had like a bazillion kids in the midst. Why are their cabins empty? Grover shifted his hooves uncomfortably. About 60 years ago, after World War II, the big three agreed they wouldn't sire any more heroes. Their children were just too powerful. They are affecting the course of human events too much, causing too much carnage. World War II, you know, that was basically a fight between the sons of Zeus and Poseidon on one side, and the sons of Hades on the other. The winning side, Zeus and Poseidon made Hades swear an oath with them. No more affairs with more women. They all swore on the river sticks. Thunder boomed. I said, that's the most serious oath you can make. Grover nodded. And the brothers kept their word? No kids? Grover's face darkened. Seventeen years ago, Zeus fell off a wagon. There was this TV starlet with a big, fluffy 80s hairdo. <clears throat> he just couldn't help himself. When their children was born, a little girl named Thalia, well, the river sticks his series about promises. Zeus himself got off easy because he, he's immortal, but he brought a terrible fate on his daughter. But that isn't fair. It wasn't the girl's fault. little girl's fault. Grover hesitated. Percy, children of the big three have powers greater than other half-bloods. They have a strong aura, a scent that attracts monsters. When Hades found out about the girl, he wasn't too happy about Zeus breaking his oath. Hades let the worst monsters out of Tartarus to torment Thalia. A satire was assigned to be her keeper when she was 12, 
but there was nothing he could do. He tried to escort her with, here with a couple of other half-bloods she'd befriended. They almost made it. They all got all the way to the top of that hill. He pointed across the valley, to the pine tree where it fight the, where it fought the Minotaur. All three kindly ones were after them, along with the boor, a horde of hellhounds. They were about to be overrun when Thalia told her satire to take the other two half-bloods to safety while she held off the monsters. She was wounded and tired, and she didn't want to live like a hunted animal. The satire didn't want to leave her, but he couldn't change her mind, and he had to stand. He had to protect the others. So Thalia made her final stand alone at the top of that hill. As she died, Zeus took pity on her. He turned her into that pine tree. Her spirit still helps protect the borders of that of the valley. That's why the hill is called Half Blood Hill. I stared at the pine in the distance. The story made me feel hollow and guilty too. A girl my age had sacrificed herself to save her friends. She had faced a whole army of monsters. Next to that, my victory over the Minotaur didn't seem like much. I wondered, if I'd acted differently, could I have saved my mother? Grover, I said, have heroes really gone on quest to the underworld? Sometimes, he said, Orpheus, Hercules, Houdini. And have they ever returned somebody from the dead? No, never. Orpheus came close. Percy, you're not seriously thinking. No, I lied. I was just wondering... I was just wondering. So, a satire is always assigned to guard a demigod? Grover studied me warily. I hadn't pursued, persuaded him that I'd really dropped the underworld idea. Not always. We go undercover to a lot of schools. We try to sniff out the half-bloods who have the makings of great heroes. If we find one with a very strong aura, like, the child of, like a child of the big three, we alert Chiron. He tries to keep an eye on them, since they could cause really huge problems. And you found me. Sharon said you thought I might be something special. Grover looked as if I just let him into a trap. I didn't... Oh, listen, don't think like that. If you were... You know, you'd never ever be allowed a quest. And I'd never get my license. You're probably a child of Hermes. Or maybe even one of the mi minor ones, like Nemesis, the god of revenge. Don't worry, okay? I got the idea he was reassuring himself more than me. That night after dinner, there was a lot more excitement than usual. At last, it was time for Capture the Flag. When the plates were cleared away, the conch horn sounded and we all stood at our tables. Campers yelled and cheered as Annabeth and two of her siblings ran into the pavilion carrying a silk banner. It was about 10 feet long, glistening gray with a painting of a barn owl above an uh, olive tree. From the opposite side of the pavilion, Clarice and her buddies ran in with another banner of identical size, but gaudy red, painted with a bloody spear and a boar's head. I turned to Luke and yelled over the knights, Those are the flags? Yeah. Ares and Athena always lead the team teams? Not always, he said, but often. So if another cabin captures one, what do you do? Repaint the flag? He grinned. You'll see. First we have to get one. Whose side are we on? He gave me a sly look as if he knew something I didn't. The scar on his face made him look almost evil in the torchlight. We've made a temporary alliance with Athena. Tonight, tonight we're gonna get, we get the flag from Ares, and you are going to help. The teams were announced. Athena had made an, uh, an alliance with uh, Apollo and Hermes, the two biggest cabins. Apparently, privileges had been traded, had been traded. Shower times, chore schedules, the best slots for activities, 
in order to win support. Ares had allied themselves with everybody else, Dionysus, Demeter, Aphrodite, and Hephaestus. From what I've seen, Dionysus' kids were actually good athletes, but there are only two of them. Demeter's kids had the edge with nature skills and outdoor stuff, but they weren't aggress- very aggressive. Aphrodite's sons and daughters, I wasn't too worried about. They mostly sat out every activity and checked out their reflections in the lake and did their hair and gossiped. Hephaestus's kids weren't pretty, and there were only four of them, but they were big and burly from working in the metal shop all day. They might be a problem. That, of course, left Ares' kid ca- cabin. A dozen of the biggest, ugliest, meanest kids on Long Island, or anywhere else on the planet. Sean hammered his hoof on the marble. Heroes, he announced. You know the rules. The creek is the boundary line. The entire forest is fair game. All magic items are allowed. The banner must be prominently displayed and have no more than two guards. Prisoners may be disarmed, but not be bound or gagged. No killing or miming is allowed. I will serve as referee and battlefield medic. Arm yourselves. He spread his hands and tables were suddenly covered with equipments. Helmets, bronze swords, spears, oxide shields coated in metal. Whoa, I said, we're really supposed to use these? Luke looked at me as if I was crazy, as if I were crazy. Unless you want to get skewered by your friends in cabin five. Here, Sharon thought these would fit. You'll be on border patrol. My shield was the size of an NBA backboard with a big catacus in the middle. It weighed about a million pounds. I could have snowboarded on it fine, but I hoped nobody seriously expected me to run fast. My helmet, like all the helmets on Athena's side, had a blue horsehair plume on top. Ares and their their allies had red plumes. Annabeth yelled, Blue team, forward! We cheered and shook our swords and followed her down the path to the south woods. The red team yelled taunts at us as they headed off toward the north. I managed to catch up with Annabeth without tripping over my equipment. Hey, she kept marching. So what's the plan? I asked. Got any magic items you can loan me? Her hand drifted toward her pocket, as if she were afraid I had stolen something. Just watch Clarice's spear, she said. You don't want that thing touching you. Otherwise, you don't worry. We'll take the banner from Ares. Has Luke given you your job? Border patrol, whatever that means. It's easy. Stand by the creek, keep the reds away, leave the rest to me. Athena always has a plan. She pushed me, leaving me in the dust. Okay, glad you, I mumbled, glad you wanted me on your team. It was a warm, sticky night. The woods were dark with fireflies popping in and out of view. Annabeth stationed me to next to a little creek that gurgled over some rocks. Then she and the rest of the team scattered into trees. Standing there alone with my big blue feathered helmet and my huge shield, I felt like an idiot. The bronze sword, like all the swords I'd tried so far, seemed balanced so ro- seemed balanced wrong. The leather grip pulled on my hand like a bowling ball. There was no way anybody would actually attack me, would they? I mean, Olympus had to have liability issues, right? Far away, the conch corn blew. I heard whoops and yells in the woods. The clanking of metal, kids fighting, a blue-plumed alley from Apollo raced past me like a deer, leaped through the creek, and disappeared into enemy territory. Great, I thought. I'll miss all the fun, as usual. Then I heard a sound that sent a chill up my spine, a low canine growl somewhere close by. I raised my shield instinctively. I had the feeling something was stalking me. Then the growling stopped. 
I felt the presence retreating. On the other side of the creek, the underbrush exploded. Five Ares warriors came yelling and screaming out of the dark. Cream the punk! Clarice screamed. Her ugly pig eyes glared through the slits of her helmet. She brandished a five-foot-long spear, its barbed metal tip flickering with red light. Her siblings had only the standard-issue bronze swords, not that, it only, that, not that made me feel any better. They charged across the stream. There was no help in sight. I could run, or I could defend myself against half the Ares cabin. I managed to sidestep the first kid's swing, but these guys were not as stupid as the Minotaur. They surrounded me, and Clarice thrust at me with her spear. My shield deflected the point, but I felt a painful tingling all over my body. My hair stood on end. My shield arm went numb. My shield arm went numb, and the air burned. Electricity. Her stupid spear was electric. I fell back. Another Ares guy slammed me in the chest with the butt of his sword, and I hit the dirt. They could have kicked me in the jelly, into jelly, but they were too busy laughing. Give him a haircut, Clarice said. Grab his hair. I managed to get to my feet. I raised my sword, but Clarice slammed it aside with her spear as sparks flew. Now both my arms felt numb. Oh, wow, Clarice said. I'm scared of this guy. Really scared. The flag is that way, I told her. I wanted to sound angry, but I was afraid it didn't come out that way. Yeah, one of her siblings said. But see, we don't care about the flag. We care about a guy who made our cabin look stupid. You do that without my help? I told him. It probably wasn't the smartest thing to say. Two of them came at me. I backed up toward the creek, trying to raise my shield, but Clarice was too fast. Her spear struck me straight in the ribs. If I hadn't been wearing an armor breastplate, I would have been shish-kebobbed. As it was, the electric point had just about shocked my teeth out of my mouth. One of her cabin mates slashed his sword across my arm, leaving a good-sized cut. Seeing my own blood made me dizzy, warm and cold at the same time. No miming, I managed to say. Oops, the guy said. Guess I lost my dessert privilege. He pushed me into the creek and I landed with a splash. They all laughed. I figured as soon as they were uh, through being amused, I would die. But then something happened. The water seemed to wake my senses, as if I just had a bag of my mom's double espresso with jelly beans. Clarice and her cabin mates came into the creek to get me, but I stood to meet them. I knew what to do. I stung the flat of my sword against the first guy's head and knocked his helmet clean off. I hit him so hard I could see his eyes vibrating as he crumpled into the water. Ugly number two and ugly number three came at me. I slammed one in the face with my shield and used my sword to shear off the other guy's horsehair plume. Both of, their back, both of them backed up quick. Ugly number four didn't look really anxious to attack, but Clarice kept coming. The point of her spear crackling with energy, as soon as she thrust, I caught the shaft between the edge of my shield and my sword, and I snapped it like a twig. Ah! She screamed. You idiot! You corpse-bred worm! She probably would have said worse, but I smacked her between the eyes with my sword butt and sent her stumbling backward out of the creek. Then I heard yelling, elated screams, and then and I saw Luke racing toward the boundary line with the red team's banner lifted high. He was flanked by a couple of Hermes guys covering his retreat, and a few Apollos behind them, fighting off the Hephaestus kids. The Ares folks got up, and Clarice muttered a dazed curse. A trick, she shouted. It was a trick! They staggered after Luke, but it was too late, 
Everybody converged on the creek as Luke ran across into friendly territory. Our side exploded into cheers. The red banner shimmered and turned into silver. The boar and spear were replaced with a huge caduceus, the symbol of cabin 11. Everybody on the blue team picked up Luke and started carrying him on their shoulders. Sharon cantered out from the woods and blew the conch horn. The game was over. We'd won. I was about to join the celebration when Annabeth's voice, right next to me in the creek, said, Not bad, hero. I looked, but she wasn't there. Where the heck did you learn to fight like that? She asked. The air shimmered, and she materialized, holding a Yankees baseball cap as if she'd just taken off her head. I felt myself getting angry. I wasn't even fazed by the fact that she'd just been invisible. You set me up, I said. You put me here because you knew Clarice would come after me, while you sent Luke around the flank. You had it all figured out. Annabeth shrugged. I told you, Athena always has a plan. Always has a plan. A plan to get me pulverized? I came as fast as I could. I was about to jump in. But she shrugged. You didn't need help. Then she noticed my wounded arm. How did you do that? Sword cut, I said. What did you think? No, it was a, it was a sword cut. Look at it. The blood was gone. Where the huge cut had been, there was a long, wide scratch. And even that was fading. As I watched, it turned into a small scar and disappeared. I, I don't get it. Annabeth was thinking hard. I could almost see the gears turning. She looked down at my feet, then at Clarissa's broken spear and said, Step out of the water, Percy. What? Just do it! I came out of the creek and immediately fell bone tired. My arms started to go numb again. My adrenaline rush left me. I almost fell over, but Annabeth steadied me. Oh, sticks, she cursed. This is not good. I didn't want... I assumed it would be Zeus. Before I could ask what she meant, I heard that canine growl again, but much closer than before. A howl ripped through the forest. The campers cheering died instantly. Sharon shouted something in ancient Greek, which I would realize only later. I had understood perfectly. Stand ready, my bow! Annabeth drew her sword, and there on the rocks just above us was a black hound the size of a rhino with lava-red eyes and fangs like daggers. It was looking straight at me. Nobody moved except Annabeth, who yelled, Percy, run! She tried to step in front of me, but the hound was too fast. It leaped over her, an enormous shadow with teeth, and just as it hit me, as I stumbled backward and felt its razor-sharp claws ripping through my armor, there was a cascade of thwacking sounds, like forty pieces of paper being ripped at one after the other. From the hound's neck sprouted a cluster of arrows. The monster fell dead at my feet. By some miracle, I was still alive. I didn't want to look underneath the ruins of my shredded armor. My chest felt warm and wet, and I knew I was badly cut. Another second, and the monster would have turned me into a hundred pounds of delicatessen meat. Sharon trotted up next to us, a bow in his hand, his face grim. D immortales, Annabeth said. That's a hello hound from the fields of punishment. They don't, they're not supposed to. Someone summoned it, Sharon said. Someone inside the camp. Luke came over, the banner in his hand forgot it, forgotten, his moment of glory gone. Clarice yelled, It's all Percy's fault! Percy summoned it! Be quiet, child, Sharon told her. We watched the body of the hell, hellhounds melt into shadow, soaking into the ground until it disappeared. You're wounded, Percy, Annabeth told me. Quick, Percy, get in the water. I'm okay. No, you're not, she said. Sharon, watch this. I was too tired to argue. I stepped back into the creek the whole camp gathering around me. Instantly, I feel better. I felt better. 
I could feel the cuts on my chest closing up. Some of the campers gasped. Look, I... I don't know why, I said, trying to apologize. I'm sorry. But they weren't watching my wounds heal. They were staring at something above my head. Percy, Annabeth said, pointing. Um... By the time I looked up, the sign was already fading, but I could make out the hologram, the hologram of green light spinning and gleaming. A three-tipped spear. A trident. Your father, Annabeth murmured. This is really not good. It is determined, Sharon announced. All around me, campers started kneeling, even the Ares cabin, though they didn't look happy about it. My father? I asked, completely bewildered. Poseidon, said Sharon. Earth shaker, storm bringer, father, father, father of horses, hail Perseus Jackson, son of the sea god. And that is the end of chapter eight. This was such a surprising chapter. Who would ever expect that Percy was one of the biggest gods in Greek mythology? And now, if you guys don't remember, in the previous you know part of the chapter, uh, Annabeth explained that it's not really it's it, it's so bad to be one of the children of the big three, the main the big the main three gods. Because you're more powerful than anyone else in camp, and monsters will more monsters will come after you, and it's so crazy. And we will read chapter nine through ten next week, and I hope you guys all join me again for another The World of Percy Jackson episode. Thank you.